Hello, hello, everyone. This is Volts for September 12th, 2022. I turned 50 years old today, guys. If you want to make me feel better about this, uh, why don't you think about a paid subscription to Volts? Or perhaps you could buy a paid subscription to Volts for someone you love. Uh, wouldn't that be a nice birthday present for me, for them, uh, for the world? Anyway, focusing on the climate actions that can make a real difference. I'm your host, David Roberts. One of the more daunting aspects of climate policy is the sheer profusion of choices. Federal, state, local, this sector or that sector, targeting consumption versus targeting production, changing consumer choices versus changing infrastructure, it is easy to get overwhelmed. And worse, it is easy for political energy to be diffused into a thousand different strands that don't add up to more than the sum of their parts. A new book seeks to address that problem by boiling down the climate policy options to the handful that really matter, the ones where minimum effort can generate maximum results. It's called The Big Fix, Seven Practical Steps to Save Our Planet, written by two people who have spent years in the climate trenches. Hal Harvey, founder of the Energy Foundation and numerous other climate-focused nonprofits, currently CEO of the research firm Energy Innovation, and Justin Gillis, a longtime journalist who spent the last several years reporting on climate change for the New York Times and is now a fellow at the Harvard University Center for the Environment. I've known Harvey and Gillis for a long time, so I was eager to talk to them as soon as I read a draft galley of the book. We recorded this conversation several months ago, before all the excitement with the Democrats' recent climate wins, but everything in it still very much applies, especially as policymaking focus moves to states and cities. We talked about learning curves, performance standards, and good old-fashioned industrial policy, among many other things. It is a real feast for all you policy wonks. Without further ado, welcome Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis to Volts. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Before we get to the book, guys, you all have have uh, been in this game for a long time now. You are, uh, let's say, grizzled veterans. So uh, let's start with just a little bio. Hal, why don't you start? You've Tell me your winding route through this world and how you sort of ended in a place where this book came out? Um, I started the Energy Foundation in 1990 with a recognition that if you solve energy crises, you solve a bunch of other problems as well, national security, conventional pollutants, balance of trade payments, and so forth, and the regressiveness of our fossil-based energy system. Did you have climate on your radar in 1990 when you founded it? Very much so, but we were very non-public about it. Mm. So we just, we called it the Energy Foundation on purpose. <sighs> So we grew that from a modest budget. It was the only climate philanthropy in the country, the only one that had existed at that point. And we grew it from an initial budget of about 10 million bucks a year, which we raised from a handful of foundations. So that by 10 years later, we started the uh, Energy Foundation China with a significant new slug of money. And that's become 
one of the biggest foundations in China um, and has very deep roots now in the energy and climate decision-making systems in China. So mm. I think that's maybe the most important thing I've done. Ten years after that, started the European Climate Foundation and the Indian Sustainable Energy Foundation, and along the way, a couple other organizations. So I guess I'm a serial nonprofit foundation founder, something like that. <laughs> but the, the essence in all of them, first of all, was that you need to affect policy to have a significant difference on climate change. Before I got into all this philanthropy business, I was uh, with my brother, design and build solar homes. Oh, interesting. What, what back in the 80s? Yeah. Wow. And we discovered that it wasn't that hard to do, good passive solar homes. There were some supply problems like today. But the more I studied energy, and I studied energy in my engineering program at Stanford as well, the more I studied it, the more I realized that the technical challenges were fixable, but the policy ones had been neglected, horribly neglected, mm. um, and often still are. So the impetus for this latest incarnation, which is climate imperative, is to identify the choices that make the biggest difference and to find ways to tip some of those choices so that we end up with a cleaner, safer environment. So Justin and I wrote the book, The Big Fix, precisely for that reason, to better aim the energies that people have. I think the biggest bandwidth shortage in the world is political capacity to make big decisions. And so if you have a lot of activated people who are working on climate change, but they're working on things that don't matter, you've really squandered all the energy, all the intelligence, all the goodwill, all the time. We can't afford to do that. And that's what was the motivation of this book, The Big Fix. And Justin, you have been in journalism. Good grief, you must have seen several uh, death and rebirth and transformation and whatever else of journalism over the course of your career. Oh, it's crazy. It's, you know, I mean, I was I was in newspapers for almost 40 years. And uh, I've said to several people, like, the career I had in journalism you wouldn't be possible today, right? You did the old school thing of just sort of coming up through a local newspaper and working on like local desks, that kind of thing, the mythological uh, career that journalists used to be able to have? Yes. I went to I went to journalism school at the University of Georgia, which is the state I grew up in. And uh, my career was a year at the Associated Press right out of school and then, you know, writing night radio copy in Montgomery, <laughs> Alabama. Went from there to the Miami Herald and and spent a dozen years there. Went from there to the Washington Post and spent a dozen years. And then, as you know, to the New York Times and spent pretty much 10 years there, a little more. Um, so that's it. Pretty textbook career and much of it not spent on science writing and certainly not on climate writing. I mean, I, I came up through the, you know, the classic way of public affairs reporting, right? Mm -hmm. Covering city and county governments, covering public utility commissions, believe it or not, as they considered rate hikes and all of that. And uh, it was less than 20 years ago that I got into the climate thing. It, it was not, um, and I, I guess I would say is not my sort of first Passion. I was covering uh, biology for the Washington Post in uh, you know biotechnology, covering the Human Genome Project, and this is 20 years ago. I sort of kept looking around, saying, really out of frustration, saying, I wonder when people are going to get serious about this climate thing. <laughs> and, I, and I was saying to myself, I wonder when we're going to see serious journalism about the climate thing. You know, the back then the journalism, as you know, was maddening, right? It, yes. It was, uh, you know, equal time for climate deniers and all that sort of nonsense. And so 
I mean, there's an old hazard in the newspaper business that if you complain about the coverage of something enough, they'll they'll basically make you do it yourself. And so <laughs> that is effectively what happened is uh, I, I just got sort of pulled into it out of the maybe vainglorious idea that I might be able to contribute a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, 10 years on the beat for the Times has sort of led me to meet Hal. And that's what ultimately led to this book. You know, we're collaborating because we bring, you know, completely different perspectives, but with a completely simpatico, I think, agenda about what needs to be done and where people need to put their energy. And you're um, retired from daily journalism now at the at the Harvard Center? Or are you still are you still at it? I do not call myself retired. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry uh, I wouldn't want to use that word. Transitioned. I, I did. Uh, I did take what's called a buyout. You know, sort of retirement buyout from the Times in order to do the book. And uh, I am at the Harvard Center for the Environment as we're recording this podcast. I probably will not be there any longer after the time the podcast runs. Uh, working on a sort of a short-term project there, so. Yeah, I do still. So I made the I made the transition, and I do write opinion pieces for the Times occasionally. I haven't had mm-hmm. that much time to do it lately, but probably do more of that as we uh, come into publication period for this book. The impetus for this book is, like Hal said, number one to sort of identify the places in the system where some pressure can actually produce something good, and sort of to direct people's energy toward those spots. Um, so I, you know, I, I have some questions about the spots and then I have some questions about the sort of citizen energy aspect of it, but let's sort of start, you go through the seven places where people can focus their energy. I want to walk through a couple of them, but you start in chapter one with a sort of key concept that ends up undergirding a lot of the rest of the work of the book, which is this notion of a learning curve. So how maybe you can start, you know, describe sort of the capsule summary of what a learning curve is and why it's so important to understand this when we contemplate how to deal with climate change. So the learning curve is, in fact, the theme that holds the whole book together, or at least one of the core themes. And in simplest terms, it is the idea that if you make more of something, it should get cheaper. (laughs) The screamingly obvious example of this is chips and computers, but it turns out it works for cars. And Henry Ford was very clear on this when he built the assembly lines, he dropped the price of new cars dramatically. And if you look across society at almost anything that we manufacture or produce, it's gotten cheaper and cheaper as volumes go up. Not everything, but almost everything has gotten that way. So one looks at the question of decarbonizing the grid and you realize you need a vast amount of carbon-free electricity. And there's a handful of options to provide it. There's solar, there's offshore wind and onshore wind, there's solar thermal and solar mirrors, but there's also geothermal, biomass, tidal waves, hydro, and so forth. In order to build a zero carbon grid, you have to optimize amongst all those choices and they, they have to be competitive against fossil choices. A very small fraction of the people will pay significantly more money for clean energy. So you have to make clean energy as cheap or, in fact, even cheaper than conventional energy because you have to overcome status quo resistance and system inertia. So this has been the dramatic story of clean energy technologies with solar dropping by more than 90% in price in the last decade, wind by almost half, 
LED lights by more than 95%. So the demand side of energy matters too. Uh, there are now learning curves underway. They're happening with offshore wind, which has enormous resources. Incredible amounts of electricity can be produced, zero carbon electricity, and they can put it offshore enough that you don't really see it. So the public policy question or the activist question is, how can we speed this up? What can you do to provoke these incredible drops in prices instead of just passively waiting around? We could have saved decades on producing these options if we had put our mind to it. We didn't do that as a society. We did it in the oil patch for sure. We didn't do it in the wind and solar and other renewable energy patches. It's finally happened. So I sometimes say it is now cheaper to save the earth than to ruin it. So we've reached a point now, a crossover point, where we can save money by decarbonizing the grid. It's kind of an amazing moment. That doesn't mean it'll still happen by itself. And that's also crucial here. There are these uh, inertial forces and lobbying forces and sometimes bad science or bad politics or evil politics or greed sometimes is pushing the old technologies instead of the new clean ones. But we have to understand these learning curves. We have to unpack them. We have to drive them. And then we have to take advantage of them. I want to push on that just a little bit. So it's one thing to sort of look at the history of a technology and note a regularity, right? It doubles every time the production of it doubles, price drops by whatever, 20%. So you can say it's on a, you know, that's the learning curve for that technology. It's one thing to note empirically that it has happened in the past. But I guess if I'm a policymaker and you're telling me not only has this happened in the past, but we can make it happen, <laughs> we can do it on purpose. Then I guess I get worried that how do I know it's something more than just a regularity? You know, this is a correlation, not causation kind of thing. Like, how do I know that this isn't something that's just happened? How do I know that I can reliably produce it on purpose? Do you know what I do you know what I'm saying? Like I I, I guess the sort of status of this learning curve in terms of an actual instrument with which to do things, I just wonder how solid do you think it is? Like how regular are these things? How reliable are they? So David, we point out in the book that in untangling this question, and it really is an important question, you know, it's a, it's a sort of cause and effect question, mm -hmm. uh, or, or really maybe it's a feedback loop. You know, things are getting cheaper, so people buy more of them. So why is, is in which way does causality run? Right. It is really difficult to untangle that. World War II is a critical example because in that case, we happen to know from circumstances that, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt wasn't, we quote somebody saying in the book, Franklin Roosevelt wasn't buying planes and tanks and so forth because they were getting cheaper, right? right. <laughs> he was buying them under the exigency of a of a threat to Western civilization. And lo and behold, as they placed huge orders and instituted this massive industrial scale up to produce the material of war, the planes got cheaper, the tanks got cheaper, the guns got cheaper, everything fell in cost. And in exactly the way that this sort of learning curve theory, which goes back to the 1920s, would have predicted. And in fact, what the guy who developed the theory, Ted Wright, was involved in all that, in helping to scale up airplane production and so forth. And so how do I suggest, and, and it's you, you're asking a really good question, and I think the, the politicians do want to be careful, right? You could waste a lot of public money 
on technologies that don't scale, right? And there are some. I mean, we've dumped huge amounts of money into nuclear power without much evidence that, you know, it's on a learning curve that's going to make it cheaper. And, you know, if you want to talk about nuclear power, we can talk about maybe why that is. Well, yeah, let's pause there because, you know, if I'm a policymaker, like, I want an explanation for why this policy didn't get on a learning curve and this one did. You know what I mean? Like that would help me feel like we understand these things to some degree. So why didn't nuclear get on a learning curve? Do we know? There's a number of reasons. One thing to look at when you're trying to decipher which technologies land on learning curves and which ones don't are, um, are they made in a factory? Are they made in the field? Hmm. So factory learning is almost obviously, I think, more capable of driving price reductions than field learning. Field engineering is expensive. I mean, if you look at the cost of a house, it's not on a learning curve. Right. Right. And if you look at the specialized aircraft that the military requires, they're on a negative learning curve. <laughs> Nuclear power is huge physically. So it's one offs. It's done in the field. You're using extremely dangerous radioactive substances, which means a lot of the work has to be done by robots, especially when you try to do maintenance. Everything's got to be done by a robot. People blame the regulators, but there was a very detailed study on what caused the price increase, and it wasn't regulation. But keep in mind, you have to have special regulation if you're creating a kind of fatal poison that'll last tens of thousands of years. (laughs) And that's not even considering, you know, wasn't the scariest headline of all or pairs of headlines in the last six weeks or since the Russian invasion of Ukraine? One was that they had taken the Chernobyl reactor why would you possibly want to revive that thing in any form, even as a target? The other was that they put the nuclear weapons on uh, alert. So these are unfathomable amounts of power that require fantastic amounts of engineering. And I admire the engineers, but it's just not going to get cheap. Not the way that it's been done in the past. There is an argument that there will be a new generation, Gen 4 nuclear power, which is cheap and modular and safe and it does everything to, that you need it to do. The only problem with this Gen 4 is it doesn't exist. <laughs> but it will be, um, you know, it's alleged to be smaller and more prefabricated, which will mean more of it will be sort of factory style and less in the field. Is it the case that, I mean, intuitively, this is something that I would like to believe. <laughs> intuitively, it seems like smaller and more modular technologies are more likely to get on a learning curve simply because iteration is faster, just because you do more generations of it more quickly. By definition, the learning curve is is the rate of decline for each doubling of production. And it's, so it's not expressed in time, it's expressed as a rate. And so, I mean, what Hal is pointing out here is, is the, this the small modular reactor idea, which is where all the hopes of the, you know, the nuclear industry sort of lie these days. It's explicitly an attempt to capture the sort of learning curve magic that we've seen in other technologies. I think we keep, what we don't know yet is whether that will really work. I mean, we call in the book for putting some, you know, a good bit of public money into it, right? We think that needs to be tested, that proposition, but you know, it could well turn out that still too much of the of the nuclear plants are kind of made in the field and subject to massive cost overruns than, than are made in factories, potentially, I guess. Right. Well, we'll see. One of our principles in putting this book together is not to be in love with any special technology, nor to have a specific aversion to any technology, but instead to look at the physical attributes and the economic attributes and the environmental and safety attributes of each. 
So when you think about nuclear power, you have to honestly say there are some issues, right? Whether it's proliferation or cost or safety or siting or whatever. And you should attack those problems. You shouldn't dismiss the possibility, but you shouldn't be a champion of something either. You should be a champion of the effects of the consequences of success. Right. Committed to the goal, lightly attached to the means. Yes. Georges Santayana said, fanaticism consists of redoubling your effort while losing sight of your goals. <laughs> right. But the point of, a, of this whole learning curve discussion, just to orient the reader, the, the idea, the point that you guys are making in the book is we've seen these learning curves at work in several key technologies, you know, chips, you mentioned wind, solar. And we know that we can do it on purpose. We've done that before. Uh, you know, you could argue that, that sort of collectively we did that with solar. If you, you know, you sort of combine Germany's efforts and China's and ours. And we have this set of technologies that we need to scale up and make more cheap to solve the climate problem. And we know how to do that to technologies. <laughs> so, so what we need to do is just take those technologies that we're going to need and get them on a learning curve. And the way to do that is start building more of them. So that's sort of like the key underlying theme throughout the book. Yes. And here's the crucial thing. In the early stages, and this is why we need public support and indeed right. we need public demand, you know, that we need the public marching in the streets asking for it. In the early stages, you have to, quote, overpay, right, for these technologies. Mm -hmm. that, that's the essence of the case is they are always more expensive, you know, when, the, when they haven't scaled yet. And so this idea, there, there's a bunch of Republican legislators running around saying, gee, laboratory research, we need more laboratory research, and that'll make, yeah. things, that'll make things cheap. Well, I mean, we do need more laboratory research, but that is not how things get cheap, right? They get cheap from being scaled up. So you have to, we have to be willing to make a conscious decision to pay more than the, the dirty alternative, right, in order to get them to scale. Yeah, and you, you make the point in the book, which is such a great illustration, you know, Elon Musk, whatever his other sins or whatever else you think about him, when he was going into Tesla, explicitly had this in mind. He said, I'm going to make a few bespoke, extremely expensive cars that are going to get bought by early adopters, and I'm going to use that to build more and make them cheaper. Like, I'm going to get on a learning curve. He was had his eyes set on it from the beginning. Totally right. I'm, I'm pretty impressed with his knowledge of the history of technology. I mean, he got this right from the very beginning, you know. Right. So learning curves, making technologies cheaper just by building more of them. And we know that building more of them, especially early on, requires, you know, in some sense, some support from consumers willing to pay more, but also public policy and public money. And it's interesting that, you know, like that seems <laughs> how to put this. It seems obvious, but it flies so in the face of this weird, dare I call it, neoliberal conventional wisdom that has been sort of gathering over the last few decades where markets are the most efficient and markets are the, you know, markets, markets, markets. It's weird that that conventional wisdom took hold when you look back in the past and you just see examples of this over and over again, where public intervention to accelerate a technology worked and nothing else does like trace any technology back you find at some point that public support in that key sort of early stage 
every significant energy technology was either invented by government scientists or supported by public policies or insured even by the public. You can say this without exception. Right. And that includes fracking and that includes three-dimensional seismic imaging for oil fields. It includes directional drilling. It includes coal power plants. It includes the big hydro. So this idea that there's this pristine free market world that operates independently of policy is wrong. On the other hand, if you tried to do it just with fiat, none of the scrubbing that the free market provides, you'd waste a hell of a lot of money and you wouldn't bring very much stuff into commercialization either. So you have to take the attributes of both. Right. Okay. So we want to just build more of the technologies we need. That's a that's an easy thumbnail guideline, and it, but it applies to some of these areas you guys identify better than others. Um, I want to walk through a couple of them because what's I think really great about the book and it's really useful is, you know, like you start with electricity and you talk about sort of some of the stuff that's happened, what needs to happen. And then every chapter ends with an explicit address to an interested reader saying, here are the policies that historically have shown that they can make a difference. And here's how you can help bring those about. So in electricity, there are uh, sort of two or three core policies or two or three sort of citizen efforts you identify. Justin, maybe you could tell us what those are. I mean, people simply need to make a demand, right? And to some extent, this happens already. We have environmental groups, certainly in the big states, maybe not in all 50 states, but in the big states, we have environmental groups sort of bird-dogging these decision-making bodies, the public utility commissions that really completely control the electricity system and control what gets built and so forth. Uh, And, you know, the public voice in those meetings is surprisingly absent, sort of few and far between. And, you know, what we give in the book are examples of people going down. We we cite a particular meeting in Colorado where a whole bunch of mothers, you know, sort of paraded up to the podium, some of them with newborn babies on their hips, saying, I don't want my child to grow up in a dirty environment. I don't want my child, you know, to breathe dirty air and get asthma. You know, I want you to approve this clean energy plan that's in front of you right now, which ultimately did get approved. And so there are multiple ways, there's sort of multiple levers throughout the economy that people can pull in that way. But essentially, Hal and I, we want to shake people away from the idea or out of the the conviction that the way you do this is in your own life as a consumer, right? We're... Mm-hmm. Uh, we're sort of opposed to green consumerism. We're not opposed to people buying, you know, as carefully as they can and, you know, recycling as well as they can and all of that. But what we're saying is that's not enough. You can't just be a green consumer. You have to be a green citizen. And, you know, when it comes to electricity, when it comes to transportation and many of these other things, yeah, people can make individual consumer choices that matter. You know, buying an electric car right now, if you can afford it, is a really good thing to do because we're right at the inflection point of the sort of takeoff of electric cars and, you know, every new increment of demand matters. But that's just not enough. Uh, If you remember, I think it was Frederick Douglass who said something like, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. And and we're, we're just at this point where we desperately need a public voice making demands. And by the way, they are not all demands on Washington. They are not all federal. We tried in the book to very carefully take people through uh, local and, and uh, you know, city and state decisions that matter 
just as much. Probably in the aggregate, they matter more. One of the things always discouraged me about the kind of things people say to citizens and these questions is, you know, either it's this weird focus on consumerism, you know, what you buy, or there's this focus on grand solutions, grand federal solutions. Yeah. But one of the things your book is good at is pointing out that there's all kinds of stuff in between those. There's all kinds of levels that are beyond your individual action that are collective, but are still sort of proximate, right? Close enough to get your hands around, close enough that you can actually have a measurable effect. Whereas like, you know, lobbying about federal stuff seems so like you're just kind of tossing a pebble into an ocean, but there's all sorts of levels of collective action closer than that. What really matters is to understand which decisions drive which outcomes and then to understand with some detail, what are the factors that push the decision one way or the other? We always think about national policy. It's the first thing that comes to mind, but A, it's hard to get. (laughs) I mean, perilously hard to get under Democratic and Republican administrations alike. But also keep in mind that the federal government doesn't set utility regulations. It doesn't set building codes. It only sets vehicle fuel efficiency standards for some of the global auto fleet or some of the American auto fleet, not all of it. Most decisions are made by specialized agencies operating at the state level, and they have rules. They have to listen to you. They have to have public input. Uh, They have a pattern of doing things. They have review periods for new policies. They have cost effectiveness tests. They're required to think about affordability and reliability and the environment. And they're often run by well-meaning technocrats. But it's not where the people who are concerned about climate generally spend their time and energy. And that's a huge mistake. So we sometimes talk about precision intervention, (laughs) All right. I'll give a quick example. Years ago, there was a a regulation that required public comment. It was a federal regulation on clean air standards. And so they had to hold nine hearings around the country and sort of listening sessions where they would explain the new proposed regulation and people would stand up and talk about it. And those things have historically been dominated by industry that would stand up and say, this is too costly. This is going to kill us. So I worked with some other folks and we organized that every single one of those hearings was filled with mothers of asthmatic kids and asthma doctors. And you know what? (laughs) It worked. We also made sure there was medical professionals putting op-eds in the paper in the city on the day when the hearing was being held. That's why I call it a precision intervention. You need to know the venue, the subject matter, the whole apparatus of whatever's driving the decision one way or the other, and then decide, can I make a difference? As Justin said, because people rarely go to these things, you as an individual can have sort of an outsized impact. Like you, you won't, you won't be in a long line. There's, they're pretty sparsely attended. It's true. And you know, what we're trying to do in this book or a big part of what we're trying to do is shake people a little bit and say, look, folks, we've confront a poverty of imagination here. Mm. People feel so disempowered by this problem, right? You've in your work, you've heard this a million times mm-hmm. as have we, you know, people say, oh, it's so big. This problem is so big. Right. You know, what can I do? I'm just one person. But people aren't thinking very carefully about their own lives or the potential influence they have. Let me give you an example. Every parent in America or 90% of them puts their kid on a school bus in the morning. Mm. That school bus is burning diesel It's blowing diesel smoke out the exhaust. It's exposing those kids to diesel smoke. Uh, We have a problem with asthma in this country, as you well know, a rising problem. How many parents out there have said to themselves yet, does that really need to be a diesel school bus? Mm. Well, it has happened in a few places. And 
you know, I guess the biggest example so far is Montgomery County, Maryland, where a bunch of kids led, by the way, by a 13 year old girl named uh, Rosa Clemens Cope uh, and her sister, Eleanor, sort of went to the school board and started badgering them and said, I'm sorry, we don't want the dirty buses. When are we going to get the clean buses? You know, the clean buses, unfortunately, still cost three times as much. Right. They're still kind of high up on the learning curve. So long story short, uh, the school board finally found a way through leasing the buses to essentially come out even. And they've committed now to converting their entire fleet over to electric school buses. That's just beginning in the United States. You know, electric buses are already well advanced trend in China, as you probably know. So I think a lot of people out there aren't thinking about their school buses, right? They aren't thinking about the city government and when did it last adopt an updated building code. There's just all these things that people can have an influence over if they stick their necks out just a little bit. Yeah. And a couple other thoughts on that, specifically the the school bus thing is I can imagine lots of school boards being willing to continue buying cheap, dirty buses quietly, but not many school boards want to have a public fight in which they are defending <laughs> exactly polluting kids lungs which is not a you know it's just not just exposing it to light alone is a huge thing and it, it also brought up something else to mind which is um you know sort of you kind of implicitly get out in the book but i don't know if you ever say it explicitly which is you know step one is is using your citizen influence to affect these institutions that are sort of close to you and subject to your effect but then step two is like publicizing the hell out of what you just did so that the other parents elsewhere in the country just maybe don't even know to think about school buses, right? I mean, just hearing that it's a thing, hearing that it's a possible subject of concern could be enough to sort of trip people into action. Totally right. Totally right. You know, one thing that Justin's not saying yet, which is really important and he won't say it, is that this book is told in really fantastic stories, true stories about how things happened. But with his journalist's eye for sieving reality from (laughs) not reality and finding the interesting personalities, the stories, the successes, the the crashing failures. So it reads like a, I'm not sure, a journal of an explorer perhaps, or something like something of that sort. It's not a dry text by any means. And of course our conversation is jumping right into the, particulars of which policies drive what changes. But the book itself is a happier read, an easier read. <laughs> right. There are tons of good stories and they're all, you know, they all have happy endings, which is nice. Like they're all <laughs> in the end, the citizens win in all these stories. But one of the things you you specified to get back to electricity where we started is you are down on dismissive of, say, a carbon tax, which is one solution people toss around quite a bit in electricity. So because you say basically that is a political hill that's just too steep to climb, like it's just impossible. People don't like taxes and it's, you know, amounts to wasted effort where there are other places to push where you'll get more action. How is a citizen, you know, other than reading your book, how are ordinary people supposed to make these kind of political economy judgments, you know, because there's a lot of happy solution talk floating around <laughs> out there. From my perspective, policy in a way is like technology. If you fall in love with a specific policy, regardless of whether it's popular or not, regardless of whether it will deliver the goods or not, 
you're already handicapping yourself very badly. Right. So if you look around and say, what has worked? This transition, this amazing transition that's underway now to decarbonize the electric grid, moving at high speed because of cheap technology. What worked? Really two policies. In Europe, they agreed to pay extra through a policy. They paid extra for clean technology. They basically wrote down the early cost before it went down the learning curve. In America, we did the same thing with tax credits or renewable portfolio standards. Mm -hmm. So there are surrogates for taxes that aren't quite as beautiful and pristine from an economist's perspective, but they have the lovely virtue of being passable and working. So see what works and multiply it by 10 times 100. How many states have adopted California's clean car standards? California's got the most advanced clean car standards of any big economy in the world. And there's about a dozen states that have adopted the California standard. You either choose the federal standard, which is slower and dirtier, or the California standard, which is faster and cleaner. It's more now, Hal. I think we're going on 20 states, actually. So the book is working already. Every time I see the number, it's higher. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a little more subtle than all this because states are adopting some, but not all. True, true. Of the standards. So I'm being conservative here. But the point is, we have examples of things that work and that you can get done in time. And we know that the carbon cycles last forever and carbon accumulation is mm-hmm. permanent. We got to get going on this stuff. The carbon budget is running out. So you can't, you don't have the luxury of passing the perfect policy. Let's pass one that's pretty damn good. I guess I have a question about that when it comes to, um, you know, when you get to the transportation chapter, you um, are big on congestion charges, congestion pricing, which for listeners benefit is just a zone typically downtown into which you must pay to drive basically just making driving in the most congested central areas putting a cost on it that it's happened in a couple of places but it's also been defeated and beat back in several places i guess i'm wondering why you know where you draw the line between what's worked and what could work and what's politically impossible and what's not like i can imagine people looking at that and saying people hate those for the same reason they hate carbon taxes they don't like paying more for things and there are easier routes in transportation yeah there's a there's a subtlety here we need to pick up on though we are for congestion charges in in major cities and also for putting 100% of the money raised by those congestion charges into better public transit, Mm. right? So it's a two-part deal, and we think it needs to be sold as a two-part deal. That is how it finally was sold in New York, right? After a decade of discussion, you know, Bloomberg tried to get it and couldn't solve the politics. Yeah. And, you know, the coalition that finally did, I mean, they got a state law, you know, with the, the full tax has yet to be implemented, but... You know, that coalition said the money is going to go. The the biggest selling point was the money is going to go to improving your daily commute. And I mean, what Hal and I would say in answer to your question, the carbon taxes have been tried for 30 years. You know, you go all the way back <laughs> right. to like the BTU tax of you uh, know, yes. Clinton and Gore. And, you know, they so we failed in this country. Now, they've they managed to do it in Europe. Great. Uh, In the United States, it has been a huge political loser, whereas a bunch of other things have worked or sort of worked. And we're we're arguing, let's go with what works. In the case of congestion charging, we don't think the argument has really been engaged. You know, I mean, Mm. it's been discussed a little bit in a few American cities, but, you know, there hasn't yet been a sort of a big push and certainly not a big push in most places through the, the lens that I'm talking about, which is 
uh, we're going to take this money and we're going to make it easier to commute by public transit. So, you know, if we get another 30 years and that policy is failing too, then I think how, <laughs> and, and, you know, we'll come out of retirement and say, okay, that didn't work. But that has not happened yet. Can I add a little color to this too? Because if you open the aperture, you see a lot more. Congestion pricing is established and working well in London and Stockholm. There's many other forms of it. In order to get a car in Beijing, you have to win a lottery. And the only lottery tickets available are for electric cars. Hmm. In order to get a car in Shanghai, you have to buy a special license. And the licenses cost 13000 bucks oh. right now. In order to use a car downtown in Tokyo, you need to prove you have a parking place before you can buy the car. <laughs> so these are not all ideas that would work in America. But then again, not all American ideas will work in other countries. It is being realistic with what you can get done rather than being um, Simon Pure about how things should happen. It may be true, David, that, you know, there's only a dozen American cities or, you know, 15 maybe where congestion charging really makes sense. This idea of, you know, building better cities is, it's not a short run project, right? I mean, it took us a hundred years to get into this hole and it's going to take, you know, it's going to take quite a long time to get out of it. And, I mean, that's one reason we're so focused on, you know, is it, for as long as we keep building suburbanized cities the way we are, then then we need people to buy electric cars. But we do also need to begin thinking about how to build those cities differently and how to densify cities. You just uh, teed me up perfectly for my segue here. I love the general framework of telling people who want to do something where they can have the most effect and how they can get engaged. But I particularly love it. <laughs> well, it's funny. I was reading your buildings chapter and I was like, this is all fine, but argh, what about density and urbanism? And then I read your <laughs> transportation chapter and I was like, where's, you know, all the stuff about EVs. Where's the, where's the public transportation? Argh. And then you guys came through and turns out have a whole chapter on urbanism and cities, which is, you know, as, as you probably know, one of my, ongoing obsessions. So tell us a little bit about, you know, there's some really cool stories of what you call tactical urbanism, which is really engaged citizens triggering changes that end up being quite significant. So maybe like just share a couple of those stories and and, and how people can get in, sort of tune into urbanism and get engaged in it. My favorite example is ubiquitous, which is people turning parking places into little restaurants and parks and things like that. Yeah. Parklets, they're called. <laughs> if you if you walk down almost any city street now in the world, but certainly in America, you see these places where they've decided, let's trade away two parking spots for a restaurant that will hold 30 additional people and have the benefits of eating outside, which is, by the way, much more feasible than most people realize. It's kind of saying, what's the public space for? Mm-hmm. If it's for people or is it for cars? And that's a pretty fundamental question. That doesn't mean you're banning all cars or that cars aren't good for a lot of things. It does mean you're providing high quality options, whether it's at a restaurant or a bike lane or so on. My favorite example of this, I was down in um, Baja in La Paz, and it's an ideal climate for bike commuting. And very few people did it because it's really dangerous. So some people led by a local doctor went and they built a bike lane. They just did it themselves. (laughs) <laughs> they they bought bags of cement and they walled off one of the edges of the main corridor. It cost them 500 bucks because they couldn't get the government to do it. And I said, what was the reaction? I said, everybody's starting a bike now. You know, if you build it, they will come. So before I left La Paz, I gave another 500 bucks so they could build one in, 
and the other lane in the opposite direction. <laughs> That's practical urbanism and it's pretty cool. You know, this point you make is is civic leaders or city leaders are often quite gun shy about these things and nervous about these things, but seeing people doing it, seeing people out using it, seeing people embracing it in action will often prod them into making bigger changes or more substantial changes. Yeah. Even in places like Dallas, you know, we've, we've seen that happen. Um, David, I want to put a slightly bigger frame on this set of questions you're asking here. Americans really don't realize what an extremely car-dependent country we live in by global standards. Oh, my God. Uh, it, it really is extraordinary. I mean, we, but we're, we're so used to it. It's the, it's the world we've built that we are, you know, the fish incapable of describing water, right? you know. And I mean, we're just at the point where, you know, we're finally getting people to kind of imagine uh, a different world. Now, th there's a history here that a lot of people don't, don't know very well. It was not inevitable that the car was going to win, right? There was a pitched battle in the United States in the teens and 20s and 30s between, you know, what I would call public use of the streets versus sort of, you know, everybody else being evicted in favor of the automobile. And as we well know, you know, the car ultimately won. Uh, the crime of jaywalking, as you may be well aware, mm -hmm. was sort of invented uh, by the car companies as part of their, you know, campaign to, to conquer the streets. So what tactical urbanism is about fundamentally is asking the question, can we make a better city by reclaiming a little bit of space from the automobile, uh, which has got way more than its fair share in the first place? And if City Hall won't do it, can we just do it ourselves? Even if we're using you know, chalk or temporary paint, can we make change happen on the ground uh, just by showing what it, what it would look like? And so there are now hundreds of examples, there are books about tactical urbanism and hundreds of examples around the country of people doing these sorts of things. And I mean, I think there's a change in the dynamic in a lot of towns. I mean, the professional urban planners have known about these issues we're talking about for 30 years and or more, really, 50 years. God bless them. Talking about beating your head on a wall. Yeah, they were completely disempowered. And, you know, we've reached a point where there's a little bit of a public demand now. And it's, it's corollary to the larger point we're making in the book is, you don't get anything without making the demand. And this business of making better cities is just one more thing where we, the public, have got to speak up and make uh, intelligent demands. And, you know, I don't know if you want to get into the whole thing about density and, you know, the Yimbies versus the NIMBYs and all of that. But, you know, we're, we're seeing that particular argument playing out in a bunch of American cities now as well. Like the idea that we can't have a society of, you know, endless carpets of single family houses ever ratcheting upward in price with, you know, young people being unable to afford to live in them. So, you know, some of this is, is a bit corollary to the climate agenda or secondary, you might say, but Hal and I think, you know, it sort of all goes together. Like we need to be for all these things if, at once, if that makes sense. One of the things, anyone who's followed this for a while is very familiar at this point with people being willing to say, Yes, climate is bad. Yes, we need to clean up everything up. Yes, I'll vote the right way and I'll buy a hemp tote bag and, you know, maybe I'll buy a hybrid. But then if you ask to like 
put a wind turbine on their farm or build a transmission line through their land or ask them to put up with their neighbors putting solar panels on their roof or ask them to put up with a single family home being torn down and replaced with an apartment building nearby them, you see all of a sudden all the happy talk about climate goes out the window and people become incredibly parochial. And this sort of phenomenon is it's wrapped up in the word NIMBY, not in my backyard, but it's, you know, it's a sort of general principle. And it just seems like a force that is leaning in the opposite direction of everything you're talking about in this book. So yeah. I just wonder if you guys thought about not just how to like push well-meaning people in the right direction, but how to dissuade people who are leaning in the wrong direction. A couple of thoughts. The first one is clean energy projects have to be actually have to be done carefully and wisely. You know, if you put a windmill in a migratory bird corridor, you're going to chop a lot of birds in half. If you avoid it, you won't kill hardly any birds at all. And there are a number of clean energy technologies. We don't want to be putting more dams in in America right now. We, we've sort of dammed all the wild rivers already. There are zones that need to be protected with because of their precious ecology or their viewscapes. That's all okay. We're not advocating in any way for reducing uh, environmental standards or public standards. However, the flip side is there are places and there are technologies that are fantastically available. I mentioned offshore wind before. Mm. You can put this 25 miles offshore. You barely see it. It produces a prodigious amount of energy. Transmission lines run underwater, 1,000 feet underwater where they're not in anybody's face. It's going to cost some more, but the learning curve's well at work with offshore wind. That's one example. But even at the more local level, you have to deliver benefits at the same time you make these changes. In Copenhagen, they took away 2% of the parking places every year. It's a small huh. number, but after 40 years, it's added up. Clever. But they did it at night and they replaced it with a little jungle gym or a water fountain or mm -hmm, a parklet. Mm -hmm. So you, th you need to think about the correlation of forces there, to use a horrible Kissinger term. Um, you need to think about how do you make this nicer overall? Right. What, what is shopping like in your streets? There are technologies that can help too. I mean, I have an electric assist bicycle, and it allows me to do a pretty long and hilly commute with pure pleasure where it used to be a grind. Mm -hmm. and, and home ownership. Um, in LA, you can get a fast permit on what they used to call a granny unit. It's a single bedroom, small house. That lets you pay for your own mortgage and it creates housing options for younger students or single parents or single people or the elderly. So if this is a battle between two ideologically opposed forces, it won't work. If this is organized around maximizing a suite of values, it'll work just fine. You are touching, David, on a critical question here, which is basically the land use objections to the things we need to do, right? And um, Which are arguably like more, I mean, this is a horribly cynical thing to say, but if you look at the sum total of citizen involvement in these issues in the U.S., you might even could argue that citizens are more likely to be pushing in the wrong direction than in the right direction. I think so. And it, it's a problem. And I sort of endorse everything Hal said. And, and you know, we've, we've got to find ways to make the transition appealing to people. But we, we're also going to have to reform some laws. I mean, one of the problems now, or maybe, maybe the problem, is too many people get a veto power for too long, right? So if a project triggers the main federal environmental law, the National Environmental Policy Act, 
and, you know, permits are required under that, you know, that project can, I mean, it, it can do, we, we outline a couple projects in the book where the, just the permitting took 10 years. It can take 15 years to get the permission you need. You face opposition all along the way. And then even after you get the permits, you know, people can sue you. How long do they have to sue you? Well, five years, 10 years after you halfway built. I mean, so there are things Congress could do that would not, and things the states in some cases can do that would not take away the right of the public to be heard, which we absolutely want to preserve here. But you ought to have a reasonable window to be heard, right? If the project got approved, why not a two-year time window, or maybe even one year for that matter, on filing lawsuits? Or if I could insert one thing here, like who's being heard in the way you've set up your process to receive public feedback, who's taking advantage of it? Who is being heard? Like very frequently in these urban NIMBY issues, you have these sort of meetings in the middle of the day, you know, and like future people don't know about them. People who don't live there yet and might want to don't know about them. Working people, single mothers, whatever, don't know about them. Who shows up? It's the old white people with the coordinating t-shirts yeah. who hate anything being built anywhere. So, so how to structure public feedback seems like a huge issue as well. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we don't think we'll get where we need to go by 2050 unless it becomes possible to build things in America again. Right. I mean, it really needs to, we really need to figure that out. I will say, if you look at where renewable energy has been supported most strongly and where uh, where it's maybe not been, that starts to scramble your sense of the politics of this issue. Yeah. Right? This is what I mean. Like ideology goes out the window as soon as someone's personal comfort comes into question. Yeah. But, you know, we, by sort of highlighting the benefits of renewable energy development, for example, Developers have had tremendous success selling those projects in the middle of the country. Now, we haven't, you know, we have had less success building transmission lines to get the power from the middle of the country where it's windy and and very few people live out to the places where the power is really needed. But, you know, if you look at sort of percentage, I mean, Iowa is getting more than half its, you know, in-state electricity from wind turbines at this point. That figure is near or approaching half in Kansas. It's an enormous number in Oklahoma. It's 20% now in Texas. These, need I remind you, are red states, right? But there's been sort of tremendous support for renewable energy development because people see benefits beyond just the climate situation, right? It's local economic development. And so, you know, anybody who was for the farmers was sort of for this. Sam Brownback, the extreme right-wing governor of Kansas, could not have been more in favor of, you know, wind energy development. And so, I mean, we one of the things I hope comes through in the book is we like scrambling up people's politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, the, there are benefits here that we think need to be sold to the public. And, and uh, but yeah, you're, you're, you're lighting on a tremendous problem here, particularly when it comes to density. It's just, we need a new framework. We need new laws. We need to end the endless vetoes. And, you know, people are trying. I mean, California has put some laws into effect that are, you know, slowly unlocking housing construction out there, for example. And yeah, it does seem like the battle's underway, at least, finally. Like, <laughs> at least there's the other side now. Yep, I think so, finally. Hal, your answer reminds me of, um, I asked uh, Brent Todarian, he's an urbanist, used to be city planner for Vancouver, about NIMBYs. And he said the number one thing you can do 
to quiet NIMBYs is to do good work. It's just yep. to, is when you do something, make it good so that people enjoy it, right? There's so much bad urbanism done. There's so much bad city making done. Like I, it doesn't really surprise me that people are jumpy about it or, or defensive about it since so much of it is junk, especially here in the U.S. Yeah. It takes time for these practices to switch. The windiest state in America is Wyoming. The windiest part of Wyoming is the eastern Wyoming, the eastern plains there. There's the, the biggest wind farm in America is being proposed for there by a Republican billionaire. Mm. Um, he spent a decade trying to get the permits. <laughs> That's just shooting ourselves in the foot, you know. <laughs> It's just insane. Isn't Wyoming also the the state that's going to sue other states that don't use its exported coal power? It's, is that am I remembering <laughs> no, that right? But but my point is, it takes it takes a moment to switch the culture a little bit, and to and it, it's happened significantly in Texas and Oklahoma with unrenewable energy. You drive around northern Indiana, there's a windmill on every plot of land. Um, so it's it's changing. I, I guess my position here is don't relax environmental standards, make them absolutely clear and explicit. And if a project meets them, it gets a permit in 90 days. Right. And also do pre-zone it. So it's red, yellow, green, red stuff. You're never going to build anything there. It's too important ecologically or scenically green stuff. If you meet the standards, you get your permit in 90 days. Right now, everything's yellow, which is let's go to war for a decade or so. It's just a silly way to manage a complex problem so far. Yes, same with uh, urbanism. I've recently become more familiar with the uh, sort of review process that Seattle buildings have to go through to get built. It, it is, <laughs> I mean, Kafkaesque barely covers it. You get your permit, and that's step one in like a 50-step process, which includes several other reviews, including reviews by like a board of other architects who do nothing but sort of nickel and dime you on your micro choices of your building. I'm just like, why do we, why on earth is this part of the process? So much cruft has built up around it. Yeah. You even see this with uh, rooftop solar, you know, which in the United States is still, uh, you know, depending on what state you're in can be still pretty far out of the money compared to utility scale solar, right? Well, in Germany, Rooftop solar is half the cost of the United States or less than half. And that's because they made it easy. I mean, we're still encumbered by, you know, you got to go to City Hall and get this permit and that permit. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, that turns into a huge cost of customer acquisition for uh, the rooftop solar companies. And, and uh, we've, we've really... As a country, we have not decided yet to make this easy, you know, which really tells you we just haven't committed to the transition, right? We're, kind of, we're still sort of in a lot of ways dabbling with it. You know, you mentioned speed. You mentioned that it takes time to change these things. And of course, we're all here uh, super cognizant of the need for speed. And I just wonder, you know, there's this book out from Malm. I think that's how you say his name about... Basically making the argument for direct action for, you know, like blowing up bulldozers and chaining yourself to stuff and, and going outside the bounds of sort of the polite institutional mechanisms we have for feedback in part just to stop things or disrupt things, but also in part to signal the urgency to other people, you guys in your book even though your book is about citizen action and citizen feedback, do not go there. And I'm curious if you gave that thought. It's a certain way for destroying your political credibility. You know, <laughs> we have to 
live by the precepts of the Enlightenment. We have to rely on logic and democracy and human values as we do this. And I'm not saying the current system is delivering what the world needs. It is not. But I would say emphatically, you can't use any means to get to your ends. It, w- it will backfire and it will be inhumane as well. What do you think, Justin? Are you, uh, would you ever encourage someone to sabotage a, a bulldozer? Yeah, I guess I'm not for blowing things up, at <laughs> least not yet. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe this gets worse. I, it is going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we are seeing sort of aggressive civil disobedience uh, from the climate community in trying to stop fossil projects, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I'm—I mean, Hal and I would say I'm not—I'm not sure we're opposed to that. I think you know that's a form of theater. Essentially, people surely know that you know stopping a single pipeline is not going to make any real difference. What we would say is, why aren't we putting the same kind of energy into bending the demand side of the equation, right? If we can cut fossil energy demand then fossil energy supply is going to take care of itself, right? So I would like to see the kind of creativity, the kind of, uh, you know, not so much blowing things up, but people have been very willing to do sort of civil disobedience, right, to stop these pipeline projects and stuff. Why don't we have civil disobedience in front of City Hall, you know, demanding, you know, a better building code? It's a lot trickier figuring out how to be theatrical in support of something. Right constructive, right? I mean, just on a human level, it's very, you know, being uh, uh, theatrical in fighting and stopping things is a well-worn, well-understood sort of track. But how do you, you know, if you're like going after a PUC meeting, how do you make that uh, attract attention? How do you be theatrical on that? It's not obvious. It is not obvious, but this is sort of what we're calling on the public to do. Unlock your minds. Let's figure out how to be creative here and uh, press the case with urgency. I mean, I think the truth is a lot of these governments, you know, they don't really have anybody in their face making any kind of a demand, right? right? You know, they're, and so every single day in this country, decisions are made to perpetuate the fossil fuel dependency, right? The, you know, by just the sheer power of human inertia. So, mm-hmm. you know, City Hall puts in their order for, you know, 50 more cars for their fleet. And by the way, they bought all gasoline cars yet again, because, you know, nobody asked them not to. By the way, I hope you saw Los Angeles, you know, just made the decision finally. They're going to go completely electric, right? I mean, we, yes. we need every city in America to be thinking like that. So, what we're saying to the public is, I mean, certainly we are not at the point of wanting to be, you know, making Molotov cocktails and burning things down. But we are at the point of uh, wanting to see all of us collectively make a much more urgent political demand at every level of government where there are levers that we can try to pull. Right. That's the goal. Right. And you can argue that a lot of this stuff is sort of small and does it really make any difference you know, if you get a new building code passed in Topeka, because, you know, it's got to be done then in 500 other cities. And I would say, you know, when we're all focused on it, this becomes a mass movement. I mean, any kind of political action that people can take is a gateway into a larger engagement with the issue. Right. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, we're only just at the point with a lot of the American public of people even thinking, like, what can I do? And so, right. you know, hence our book is you know, appearing at this very moment, saying to people, here are some things you can do, right? Go at it. Awesome. Well, I've kept you guys long enough. I know you have probably uh, 50 other podcasts record, among other things. I'm sure you're on the on the book grind. I just wanted to say thank you for, um, 
you know, this space of what can I do that's in between the individual and the sort of distant, you know, IPCC process or whatever, that vast space is full of so many opportunities. And I appreciate you guys pulling some out and having such a practical take on this. So congrats on the book. Thank you. We're continuously inspired and I'm not being nicer by your journalism. It's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yes, David. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.